Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ruminations from Pardes. I'm Shlomo Ben-David, and this week's is Rumination 34. What identifies the disciples of Messiah? Is it a creed, a bumper sticker, a membership? Over the centuries, there have been numerous ways that so-called true believers of Jesus have identified themselves. Creeds and statements of, I believe as well as tie pins, necklaces, and bumper stickers are like secret handshakes between fellow members. But what is the real way to identify a disciple of Messiah? Of course, any child of the 1970s Jesus movement can tell you they will know we are Christians by our love. By our love. The popular camp song is derived from Yeshua's statement about his followers. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13.35 Sounds perfect, but out of context, it is without meaning or substance. Beloved, we do not know what love is, without knowing how the Almighty defines it, and He has defined it again and again, and yet men are loath to obey Him. And this commandment we have from Him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. 1 John 4.21 You can never separate love from the commandments of the Almighty. Love and the revelation of God's righteousness, the Torah, are inseparable. Love of God and love of each other are defined in the Torah. Cast it aside and you will only think you love God and your brother. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 2, and 3 The disciples of Messiah are marked by our love for one another. Our love for one another is defined by the Torah. Without the Torah, love has no biblical definition. We are part of an eternal lamp. We ourselves are wicks that fuel the flame, revealing the Shekinah to the world around us. What is the oil that keeps our wick lit? What is our love? It is Torah deeds, beloved. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5.16 should also note that in other places the Torah does define love. Deuteronomy 6.5 and you shall love the Lord your God. And then again in Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two verses hang all of the commandments or mitzvot. The first quote is the vertical relationship we have with God, meaning that if we love him, we obey him. The second one is to horizontal, or among men. So when we first love God, then we can love our brother or our neighbor as ourself. Or another word that is also used is fellow. For John uh, gives indication to this in his first letter, How can we love our brother if we do not love God whom we have not seen? 
He who does not love his brother can cannot love God whom he has not seen. There's also another verse in Vayikra 19, and this is in Parashat Kedoshim, you shall not hold a grudge against your brother. Or some translations read, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. See, something else to be careful of, you know, we don't get to hold grudges, we got to, we have to forgive. Even Peter came up to Yeshua and asked him, you know, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? And Yeshua says, 70 times 7. Which does not place a limitation on forgiveness, meaning that we should forgive always. And without limit, without expectation, without any uh, ulterior motives, but to simply forgive. And then this week's Parsha, Beha Olotka, Speak to Aharon and say to him, When you arrange the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. Numbers 8.2 Beha is translated as arrange or light in some modern English translations. In some ways, this obscures the root word in our English Bibles. The root is Allah, raise up, ascend, which shares the same root as Olah. We have seen this word before. It is part of the phrase, Korban Olah, mistranslated burnt offering. We saw this a lot in the book of Leviticus. It is to raise or ascend, and when matched with the word Korban Olah, we saw the two verbs joined to provide an image of draw near and ascend. In the worship of the Almighty, Allah is also the root for Aliyah, when someone goes up to read the Torah, or when someone goes up to the land of Israel. So the question we must ask is, why is this Parsha named for lifting something up? It is about the erecting, the lighting, and lifting up of the menorah in the Mishkan, tabernacle. The seven lamps are the only earthly light that is to be found in the Mishkan. It seems odd that this verse makes the point that the seven lamps of the menorah give light in front of the lampstand. Why in front? The odd wording indicates that the lamps pointed inward to the center of the menorah. To understand that, let me paint a picture for you. Imagine the billowing smoke from the altar of incense, creating a cloud that fills the entire holy place of the tabernacle. Imagine it's so thick that you can hardly make out any shapes at all. Standing in front of the veil, turn to the left and face back toward the entrance into the holy place. What would you see? Seven eyes. The seven lamps of the menorah. Yes, beloved, those seven lamps of the menorah were meant to look like seven eyes. Remember back in Parashat Tetzaveh, Exodus 27, 20-30-10, we saw the relationship between the menorah and eyes, specifically the eyes of Hashem. We learned that the menorah was constructed with golden almond clusters as a decorative motif, or so it seems. When we look at the Hebrew, we learn that the Hebrew word for almond is shakad, which comes from the word shakad, which means to watch. 
In John's vision, we are told that the seven eyes also represent the seven spirits of God. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. These are to be compared to the seven eyes on the stone in Zechariah 3.8. As in all things, this is to reveal Messiah. He is seen in the menorah. Likewise, the lifting up or lighting of the menorah as the commandment was given in this week's portion is likened to our relationship to Messiah. He, the light of the world, is revealed in this world by us, his disciples reflecting him. Like the lamps of the menorah were to direct light to the center, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. So too we are pointing to our master by our acting out his deeds of righteousness. Lift him up, Beha Olotka. Lifting up Messiah is also seen in how we approach the commands of the Almighty. Consider something else found in this week's Parsha. Numbers 9, 1-4 describes an interesting account of a group of men who, because of corpse defilement, did not have an opportunity to share in the Passover that year. We read in this week's portion how God permitted those who missed Passover because of a number of issues to have a second Passover a month later. Without going into all the details regarding why this could occur, I want to focus in on why these men came with their complaint to Moses in the first place. It is something many have never considered because sometimes we are looking through the wrong theological glass glasses. The classic understanding of the Old Testament is that in the law of Moses, people were saved by works, like offerings and obedience. Let me tell you up front, in case you don't already know it, this is false. The problem is our understanding of the English word salvation. Have you ever wondered how a major sect of Judaism in the first century ever had any draw? If they believed that there was no resurrection from the dead? Think about it. If the law of Moses or the tabernacle temple institutions had anything to do with eternal salvation, how could the Sadducees have been anything other than a few nutcases? Regardless of their theological error, the beliefs of the Sadducees are give us a glimpse into the issue of salvation and the entire tabernacle temple worship experience, where we and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 would ask, Is there, if there is no resurrection from the dead, what is the point? Apparently there was a point, albeit a temporal and experiential one. The tabernacle temple system was never about eternal salvation and never promised to be. Calling the Torah as a workspace salvation plan is one of the silliest inventions of so-called scholars over the past centuries. Simple observation will reveal that. The point of the tabernacle temple was not about eternal salvation. It was always and still is about being in the presence of the creator of the universe. He had promised to dwell in their midst. He has promised to dwell in our midst. There was a powerful draw to the tabernacle and then the temple. It was a single place on earth where heaven intersected earth. It was all about worshiping and experiencing God. It was about a love relationship, the desire to be near Him. Likewise, keeping the commandments is to be part of a love relationship, 
all about experiencing the presence of God and revealing His glory to others. In Numbers 9, these zealous men desperately wanted the opportunity to keep a commandment, and in keeping the command to experience even for a moment the presence of God. They wanted to do the mitzvah of Passover. They were zealous for Hashem, and it showed. They could have, like so many today, said, Oh well, I missed it, no loss. I couldn't keep Passover, maybe next year. We should be like these men who earnestly desired to share in in the Passover. They were zealous for the commands of Hashem. In that zeal, they lifted up the light of the menorah. These men in Numbers 9 remind us of two Pharisees in the first century, men who, because of their love for our Master, took his body and laid it in a tomb, thereby making themselves Tameh, ritually unclean, and thereby foregoing the Passover that year. I am speaking of Joseph of Arimathea and Nakdimon ben Gurion, Nicodemus, John 19.38-42. No doubt they zealously kept the command of the second Passover 30 days after our Master's execution and resurrection. I see young men today in Torah communities that are much like Yosef and Nakdimon. They love Messiah. They show their love for him by being zealous for his commandments. They purposely go out of their way in order to fulfill a mitzvah. As an example, they do not normally wear four-corner garments, but choose to put them on in order that they can do the mitzvah of wearing tzitzit fringes, seen in next week's Parsha. When their acts of kindness, modest respect for women, and respect of elders is seen, so are the tzitzit that identify their deeds as obedience to the commands of Hashem, not merely random. Here's to the zealots, those men and women who daily live lives that lift up Messiah. They know what it is to let their light shine. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5.16, quoted earlier. For the mitzvah is a lamp, and the Torah a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Proverbs 6.23 Beloved, you are the light of the world. We reflect our Master, who is seen in the menorah. Lift him up, let your deeds shine. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before all men, that they may see your deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The lamp is the mitzvah, the light it shines is the Torah. The lamp is the mitzvah, the light it shines is the Torah. By Arba Minim. Lift Yeshua up, Beha Alotka. In this segment, I'll be reading from Rav Dessler on the Parsha. On Beha Alotka, Levites and the Firstborn. Take the Levites out of the children of Israel and purify them. The verse goes on to list several kinds of purification, sprinkling with sanctified water, shaving hair, washing clothes, etc. All these acts are intended to add purity upon purity, refinement upon refinement. The Torah concludes with the words, And they shall purify themselves, indicating the main point that they should purify themselves on their, in their own hearts. The Madrega of the Levites the purpose of the whole procedure, as the Torah 
indicates is, The Levites shall be mine. Ibn Ezra comments, This is a great dignity. Mine means devoted to me, which implies service that is completely and absolutely for the sake of heaven. Lishma, this is indeed a great madrega. Sophorno remarks, They and their descendants shall be ready for my service. Their readiness must be so deeply felt that it is capable of influencing even future generations. The Levites must be permanently available for the service of Hashem. For they are given given to me from among the children of Israel. The repetition of given is explained by Sephorno as follows. Given of themselves, for they gave themselves up for my service. As the verse testifies when Moshe proclaimed, Who is for Hashem? To me. All the Levites gather to him. Given also from among the children of Israel, who would provide the livelihood of the Levites in the form of Maaser Rishon, the first tithe, in exchange for their service, so that my service shall be jointly performed by all. On the same lines we find in the, in the Midrash, Take the Levites for leadership, for my name's sake. To merit serving the Kohanim is leadership. God raises no one to leadership without first examining and testing him. So it was with Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Yosef, and similarly the tribe of Levi, who gave their lives to sanctify God's name and to save the Torah. The Madrega of the Firstborn Had it not been for the sin of the golden calf, service would have stayed the responsibility of the firstborn of every family. Sephorno supplies the reason. It was an ancient tradition that service be performed by the firstborn. They are the most honored in their home, and service belongs to them. As we know, greater advantages, more kalim, mean more obligations. But the Torah gives an additional reason for the sanctity of the firstborn. On the day I struck down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified for myself every firstborn in Israel. On this verse, 3.13, Sephorno says something remarkable. He tells us that the firstborn of Israel might well have been stricken on that night together with the firstborn of Egypt being the most honored among people. They might have had to suffer for the sins of the generation. Also, one has to be has to have very special merits to escape a general catastrophe, as we see from Lot and Sodom. God explains that he saved the firstborn of Israel from this fate by investing them with a special sanctity. He devoted them to himself so that they were not allowed to engage in any common task, just as a holy object may not be used for any non-holy purpose. When the danger was passed, God ordered them to be redeemed from this special status, but the obligation of service remained. Only when Israel sinned with the golden calf did the firstborn forfeit this obligation, which was taken over by the tribe of Levi. Sephorno is addressing the puzzling fact that already in Egypt we were given the commandment to redeem the firstborn. Although the firstborn were not rejected until the sin of the ego, and why another redemption here 
and Behalotka? His answer is that there are two forms of sanctity. Originally, the firstborn, because of their elevated status, were given the obligation and privilege of performing the service of the Corbano. This did not involve a personal status of holiness. Then, in Egypt, on the night of the plague of the firstborn, they were given a status of personal sanctity in order to save them from the plague. Thus, two redemptions became necessary. In Torah life, also we see that there are two forms of sanctity. Everything we have, though not holy in itself, should be used as a kali to serve the purpose of holiness in the world. This corresponds to the original status of the firstborn, but in the time of the temple, things could also become uh, bekdesh, completely devoted to the sanctuary, and could not be used for any non-holy purpose whatsoever. This corresponds to the special status of the firstborn in Egypt, and also to the status of the Kohanim and Leviim, whose whole lives were to be dedicated to the service of God as we saw above. This latter status has been taken over by those stalwart souls in our time who devote themselves entirely to learning and teaching Torah, as Rambam writes. And not the tribe of Levi alone, but any person of all who come into the world whose spirit moves him to stand before God and to serve him. Dismissing all worldly calculations, he is sanctified, holy of holies, and God is his portion forever. He will be given what he needs in this world as the Kohanim and Leviim were. Redemption and the Firstborn Today The mitzvah of redeeming the firstborn throughout the generation seems to teach us that there is some residual sanctity in the firstborn even today. A human being sees the hand of God most clearly in the first appearance of anything, be it the first fruit to ripen on the tree, the first grain of the new harvest, or the first portion of the dough the housewife prepares for her family's bread. To celebrate these special moments, the Torah has given us three mitzvot, Bikurim, Teruma, and Chala. Similarly, the Jewish father sees in his firstborn son the first continuation of his line. Here again he sees clearly the gracious hand of God, and the mitzvah of Pidion HaBen captures these holy thoughts and may also give expression to the yearning of the Jewish father that his firstborn should be able to devote his life to the service of God. By the money he gives for Redemption on behalf of his son, he associates his son with the upkeep of the Kohen. The man of Hased, the servant of Hashem, in this way his infant child is contributing to the welfare of Kalal Yisrael. Maybe the Torah is teaching us that the best way to advance in the spiritual life is to attach ourselves to Hased. And notes for this. Bamidbar 8.6, see Rashi on 8.7 in the name of Rav Moshe HaDarshan. Numbers 8.14 and 8.16, Shemot 32.26, Bamidbar 18.21, Yakut Adlok, Rashi on 8.17. Bamidbar 3.13, echoed in 8.17. 
See Bereshit 1915. From Commentary on Bamidbar 313. Shemot 1313. Laws of the 7th and 50th Years on 1313. See also Mishnah Berua, Orach Kaim, 156, Berur Halakha, and Shemot 2314, Bamibar 1812, and 1521. In this segment, I'll be reading from Garments of Light by Ephraim Pavanov. 70, S- 70 illuminating essays on the weekly Torah portion. On Beha Alotka. Shaving and the mystical power of beards. Beha Alotka starts with God's command to light the temple menorah, followed by a description of the Levite initiation ritual. This ritual required the Levites to have their entire bodies shaved with a razor. Numbers 8 7. Yet, it is well known that Jewish law forbids shaving the face with a razor. Where did this prohibition come from? The Torah source is found in Leviticus 19.27, where God commands that, You shall not round the corners of your head, nor shall you destroy the corners of your beard. The wording here is ambiguous and perplexing. What does it mean to not round the head's corners, or not to destroy the beard's corners? The verse does not say anything about shaving with a razor either. Moreover, the context of this verse is amidst a set of things not to not do while mourning the dead. This is precisely how the Mishnah in Tractate Bakot understands it. If a man makes a baldness on his head, or rounds the corner of his head, or destroys the corner of his beard, or makes a cutting in his flesh for the dead, he is liable to flogging. Whether he makes one cutting for five dead, or five cuttings for one, he is liable for each. Shaving is included among a set of things not to do when mourning the dead, such as making a bald spot on the head, which comes from a related verse in Leviticus 21.5, they shall not make baldness upon their head, neither shall they shave off the corners of their beard, nor take any cuttings in their flesh. Here again we see a prohibition against shaving the beard's corners. This one, however, is in a set of laws directed only at Kohanim, the Talmud in Makot 28 explains how even though this verse applies only to priests, other Torah verses ex- expand the prohibition to all of Israel. Nonetheless, all of this is technically only supposed to apply when mourning the dead. Ibn Ezra on Leviticus 21.5 makes this clear as well. Historians have indeed found that shaving was a common mourning ritual in the ancient Near East. Tearing out hair in grief, thus making a bald spot for the dead, or shaving hair as an offering to the dead were frequent sights. We even see evidence of this in Jeremiah 41.5, which describes mourners with shaved beards. The Torah prohibits this type of extreme mourning. 
The Mishnah cited above continues by saying that one is only liable for punishment if they used a razor to shave their hair. However, another opinion is that any hair removal, even if plucking out each hair one by one, is forbidden. The first opinion is the one that is followed, and thus shaving hair with a razor in connection to a morning ritual is forbidden. If that's the case, why is shaving with a razor for hygienic or aesthetic purposes forbidden? Reinterpreting Verses The Rambam takes an alternative approach in explaining the prohibition of shaving. He writes in Morei Nebuchim, Part 3, Chapter 37, that shaving was the practice of idolatrous priests who were clean-shaven in those days. Therefore, maintaining a beard was a way to distinguish Jews from idolaters. This idea appears to be supported by verses in the book of Jeremiah. For example, Jeremiah 9, 24-25 states, Behold, Days are coming, says Hashem, that I will punish all of them that are uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all the Ketuzeh Pe'ah that dwell in the wilderness. For all the nations are uncircumcised, but all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Jeremiah prophesies that A day will come when God will punish all the uncircumcised idolaters, as well as Jews who may be circumcised physically, but are not circumcised spiritually. A list of nations follows, and then appears the term Ketsuze Pe'ah. This phrase, which also appears in Jeremiah 25.23 and 49.32, can be translated as trimming the corner, or more accurately, cutting the corner. Thus, some took it to mean that God will punish all those nations that shave the corners of their beards. However, reading the verses in context shows that they are unlikely to be speaking about trimming beards. Ketsuze Peah is more likely referring to those who live in the distant corners or ends of the world. God is saying he will punish Egypt, Judah, and Edom, Ammon, Moab, the nations of the wilderness, and all the uncircumcised in the farthest corners of the earth, wherever they might be. This is made even clearer in this second passage where the term appears, Jeremiah 25:23, and a long list that is entirely geographical. And all the kings in the land of Uz, and all the kings in the land of the Philistines, and Ashkelon, and Gaza, and Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the children of Ammon, and all the kings of Tyre, and all the kings of Zidon, and all the kings of the Isle, which is beyond the sea, Dedon, and Tima, Buz, and all the Ketuze Pe'ah. And all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mingled people that dwell in the wilderness, and all the kings of Zimri, and all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of the Medes, and all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are upon the face of the earth. The final instance of the term Ketuze Peah, Jeremiah 49.32, makes it undoubtedly clear, and I will scatter into all winds, 
Ketuzei Peah, and I will bring their calamity from every side, says Hashem. To interpret the term here as shaving the corners of the beard makes little sense. It is evident that God is saying he will punish the people by scattering them among the winds to the ends of the world. Indeed, the word peah throughout the Tanakh refers to the land and geographical boundaries in almost all cases. This is particularly true with the mitzvah of peah in which Jewish farmers must leave the corners of their field unharvested to be consumed freely by the destitute and disadvantaged, Leviticus 19.9 and 23.22. Except for just a few other cases, the term peah is used dozens of times across the Tanakh in geographical context, whether for farmland or to delineate the borders of Israel, such as in Numbers 34.3 and Ezekiel 47 and 48 where the term appears most often, or to outline the limits of cities, Numbers 35.5, for example. Furthermore, the Rambam's argument that idolaters were clean-shaven simply does not hold up to the historical record. While the priests of some nations were clean-shaven, the vast majority were not. Most pertinently, Babylonian, Assyrian, and Persian priests had nice long beards. These were the Israelites' primary neighbors and adversaries for most of ancient history, and none were clean-shaven. Today, too, some of the nicest beards are sported by priests and gurus of various idol-worshipping religions, particularly in the East. Therefore, the argument of not shaving to avoid appearing idolatrous is weak. Besides, there is no prohibition to look clean-shaven rather only to shave with a razor. In any case, the Torah's prohibition applies specifically to cases of mourning, and this is a major reason why Halakha forbids a Jew from shaving for 30 days following the death of a close family member. Ironically, when speaking of a razor, specifically the Torah seems to be quite positive about it. In this week's Parsa, shaving with a razor is part of a cleansing purification, as it is for someone who was afflicted with Zara'at, or someone who had been a Nazir. See Balhal Turim on Leviticus 13.33. In one instance, Ezekiel 5.1, God actually commenced the prophet Ezekiel to take a sharp razor and shave his beard. Most tellingly, Isaiah prophesies that a day will come when God himself will purify us all by shaving us with a razor. In that day Hashem will shave with a razor the head and the hair of the feet, and it shall also sweep away the beard. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall rear a young cow and two sheep, and from the abundance of milk that they shall give, he shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall every one eat that is left in the midst of the land." This verse explicitly mentions shaving the beard with a razor as part of mankind's final purification. The verse is found in a long passage, Isaiah 7-9, through that weaves in prophecies about the coming of Mashiach and the return to an idyllic world where 
Endless peace will be upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it through justice and through righteousness from henceforth and forever. Shaving in Kabbalah While there is little substance to the prohibition of shaving in the Tanakh, there are Kabbalistic reasons for maintaining a beard. The Zohar Ida Zuta 289 AMB writes, all things precious come from the beard of Atika Kadisha. It is called the mazel of everything. From the mazel beard, which is the most precious of all precious things, both upper and lower beings are sustained. They all look up to that mazel. All life derives from and is nourished by mazel. Heaven and earth are dependent on mazel. There are thirteen streams of every good oil flowing from the beard of Mazel, the most precious of all. Through this, Mazel's tangled supernal knots are united from the head of all heads, which is unknown and inconceivable, not known to either upper or lower beings. In this way, all things derive from Mazel. This enigmatic passage speaks of the beard of Atika Kadisha which literally means the ancient holy one in Aramaic. The term derives from the seventh chapter of Daniel, where he beholds a heavenly vision and describes a great being who is ancient of days, Atik Yomin, with his raiment as white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool, his throne of fiery flames and its wheels of burning fire. Daniel is describing the mystical Merkava, God's chariot. While the anthropomorphic description of God is troubling for modern readers, we find such anthropomorphisms throughout Jewish literature. The Talmud, Berko 6a, speaks of God wearing tefillin, while the Midrash describes God teaching Torah in heaven, and even citing the rabbis, see Yalku Shimoni, Isaiah 4.29. The ancient mystical text Shi'ur Koma is most explicit, speaking of various divine measurements of God and saying that God resembles an old, handsome man, while the text claims to have been revealed by the angel Metatron to Rabbi Ishmael and later taught to Rabbi Akiva. The Rambam, among others, declared it heretical. Nonetheless, other great rabbis defended it. The Zohar, too, often speaks of God in anthropomorphic terms. Of course, as in the passage above, it adds that these representations are unknown and inconceivable, both to humans and angels. They appear to be only metaphoric descriptions. Whatever the case, we are told that God's beard, called Mazel, is the source of all life and sustenance in creation. Mazel literally means flow. The Hebrew word for liquid is nozel, and all fortune and goodness flows down from God's beard. The beard has 13 knots, and the untangling of those knots allows sustenance to flow smoothly. As such, the beard becomes a symbol of tremendous importance in Kabbalistic thinking. Since our very purpose is to emulate God and be like Him. As the Torah repeatedly commands, keeping a long, flowing beard is therefore of great significance. It can help bring one 
Mazel, good fortune, as well as open the paths to wisdom. The Idrizuta goes on to explain that the beard grows because of the great forces of wisdom emanating from God's brain. As this light travels down from the brain into the spinal cord, the narrow passage of the neck is unable to contain the illumination, causing the energy to exude outwards and manifest as a beard. This is why the beard grows continuously. Keep in mind that the Hebrew term for beard is zakan, is related to the word for elder, zaken, because an elder is one who has wisdom. The sages explain that zaken is a contraction of zekana hokma. This one has acquired wisdom. Similarly, the beard, zakan, represents wisdom. The 13 points. The Zohar states that the mazel beard has 13 knots, or locks. The Kabbalists would tie this concept with the, with that of the five corners of the beard that are forbidden to be shaved. Whereas the Talmud speaks of five corners, later mystical texts speak of 13 corners. These 13 are tied to God's famous 13 attributes of mercy, which describe his everlasting kindness. The beard thus also becomes a symbol of hesed, the sephira of kindness. Based on passages elsewhere, in the Zohar, the Arizal explains that conversely, hair on top of the head represents din, or gavura, strict judgment. This is why Rabbi Akiva would shave his head and go bald. The Talmud calls Rabbi Akiva Kiriach, the bald one, and Rabbi Yehoshua ben Karka, son of the bald one, is believed to be his son. The Arizal teaches that Rabbi Akiva would shave in order to remove the dean from upon him and allow him to more easily bring people to holiness. As such, going bald is actually a good sign. The Arizal further explains that this is why the Levites had to be entirely shaved in their initiation rite to remove all the forces of dean from upon them. Meanwhile, white hair represents Rakamim uh, Gimarim, complete mercy, and should not be shaved. Rakamim is typically associated with the Sephira of Tiferet. Thus, the beard is Hesed, and the hair opposite the beard on top of the head is Gavura, which is opposite Hesed. And white hair on the head, whether top or bottom, is Tiferet. The white hair is symbolic of the white, wool-like hair of Atik Yomim, as described by Daniel, and is the highest form of divine imitation. For these reasons, many followers of Jewish mysticism leave their beards completely untouched, and the hair on top of their heads trimmed short, if not entirely shaven. Yet Ezekiel 44.20 states that one should not shave their head, nor allow their locks to grow long. Meanwhile, some Kabbalistic sources also state to keep the mustache trimmed, since it grows over the mouth and blocks one's prayers. Above, we saw that the untangling of the locks of Mazo allow fortune to flow. May we therefore conclude that it is important to keep the beard groomed and unknotted as twist, ties, and knots constrict the flow.